In this episode of the McBee Podcast, we listen in on the third session of the second day of the 2018 McBee Mentoring Week. Dr. Suzanne Swan and Bonnie Fisher gave experiences and examples with interdisciplinary collaborations that have worked well and have not worked so well for them in the past. A common theme was that recognizing that the field of violence prevention cuts across multiple areas and therefore requires some flexibility. I'm going to kind of just get us a little warmed up for our energy exercise this afternoon. Can we just like stand up? I won't make us dance or anything now. But just as a kind of prelude to this afternoon, you might want to just move around and start, you know, if you want to dance, you can. You can. You can do yoga. <laughs> we are going to move around a little bit this afternoon. Um, so uh, thank you so much, Chris. I think excellent comments. So I didn't know that we were doing this in the large group, so I hadn't prepared anything, but I will share something with you that's happened to me over the last six months. So uh, if you prefer standing, you can. Um, if you'd like to sit back down, you can. Um, but I'd like a show of hands of how many people in the room have heard of the term the glass cliff. Glass cliff. Two. And that's because I sent Heather McCauley the articles about the glass cliff. So the glass, the glass cliff, so there's been a number of uh, research studies and articles written about this. So the glass cliff is that women are tend to be disproportionately hired into administrative positions when a unit, whether that be a department, a college, a university, a corporation, is failing. When a unit is going under. Right, So women are disproportionately hired into those positions. They come in, they do the heavy lifting, and they do the job, and then they're bashed for it. Right? Right. On the contrary, men are, and the research shows this over and over and over, men are traditionally hired into positions where a, uni where a unit, an organization is flourishing much more likely to be hired to women into those positions. So the reason I say this is I've been an administrator over the last five years. Um, uh, my life has been, I was recruited up from Ohio State University to Michigan State University. And when a chair is recruited from the outside, it's typically because a department or a unit is really not doing well. It's failing, right? Usually a dean will be recruited from the outside, but department chairs aren't typically recruited from the outside unless a department is not doing well. Um, so over these last five years, my job has involved a lot of heavy lifting on the administrative side, particularly in HR. I've had to retire six faculty members. I've got a tenure stream faculty members that we're getting ready to dismiss. We've recruited seven superstars, Megan and Heather, uh, lots of visioning, research plan, restructuring, and whatnot. Um, so basically did everything that the organization asked me to do, and, and then some. Um, and because of the work we do, and I'm typically asked by the Office of the Provost to come talk to other administrators and present on how you do this, how you advance unit culture change. Yet, not everybody loves me for what I've done, right? So there's a lot of people who, it, within the unit who are unhappy with, with the changes that I've made, with the changes that I was asked to made, make by the provost's office, by the president's office. So in a sense, I've really become like a fall gal uh, for the, for, from the perspective of those, those um, people. So I've done everything that the institutions asked, but wasn't necessarily good for me and wasn't necessarily good for everyone in the unit. So that's been um, kind of a struggle. 
to on the flip side, kind of the survival strategies that I've used, uh, particularly over the last several months, is um, peer support being so incredibly important. So I mentioned yesterday, uh, you know, being on panels with other administrators where we're asked to talk about these, these uh, changes. I'll invite them to coffee until lunch. So now pretty much every day of the week, I've got a coffee or a lunch schedule with somebody, one of my peers, where we'll go and we'll talk through some of these issues. Really important if you decide to become an administrator, but I would argue it's really important for you to, to build on some of what Chris says, struggles that you might be having in the classroom, um, struggles with research, struggle with your peers in your department, really important to have that support. Um, and then, the, so in addition to those just general coffee conversations, um, we had a conversation in our hive last night, like what gets me energized anymore? It's like the subversive, right? It's like anarchy. It's like, you know, getting together with people. So I had an interview with the Atlantic last week about what's happening at Michigan State, and I enjoyed that interview because I got to say some really anarchist things. I said that I don't like tenure, and I don't like tenure because it sets up a structure that really makes junior faculty members feel very nervous. They don't need to be nervous, most of them. Right, it sets up a, a, a type of situation. Am I going on too much? No, okay. It sets up a situation where they feel anxious for six years. They don't need to feel anxious for six years. It's a hazing process where senior faculty members will put pressure on those, those junior faculty members. And then once people do get tenure, it's a, it's a situation where people can coast then, right? So I'm not a particularly good fan, a fan about it, so I got to say that to the Atlantic, so that will probably be in the Atlantic and will probably get me removed from my position, but that's okay. I felt good, I felt energized saying that. <laughs> and then the last thing um, that's really helped me keep me grounded through all these things is yoga. And if I can't get to yoga, I try to go every Saturday and Sunday. If I can't get to yoga on Saturday or Sunday, I definitely feel it. And it's been a few weeks since I've been able to get there and I'm definitely feeling it right now. So it was good to have like a subversive con conversation last night with my hive because that helped kind of refuel and re-energize. Um, but so peer support, having subversive conversations and then yoga, I would say is kind of what did it for me. And I have lots of experience managing toxicity, um, toxic people. Uh, as you can imagine, retiring people and firing people doesn't make you a very likable person, right? And so people kind of come after you. I've got lots of experience being um, kind of being the target of those toxic people, and I have strategies I deal with that, and I'd be happy to talk about any of those. Amy, hi. I'm fascinated by your comment on culture, and culture change is sort of my area. So I'm curious how you, first as a faculty member and then as a faculty administrator, work effectively with the administration, because I find, in full disclosure, I'm in the administration now, is that we often come at it, or at least the assumptions are that we're on two different sides of the ball game, and we're just not, right? Um, so culture in terms of how we advanced it in our unit or? And then how you work with the administration to sort of move beyond the dichotomy that's often faculty, administration, we're on two sides of the spectrum. Yeah, and I'm not sure I completely successfully, I think I did that for a large part, but this past summer we had a bit of a crisis with some staff transition and that, that really upset a number of faculty members in the department. I think from that point it's been, a bit of a rocky road, but um, in terms of how we advance culture change, it was coming in and working with our department advisory committee. So getting the beginning to build consensus around what are we, who are we as a department, and who do we want to be? Do we, how do we want to be excellent? Do we want to be excellent? Not everyone in the department wants to be excellent, but 
for those who want to be excellent, how do we want to be excellent? And having the Department Advisory Committee really craft that vision um, and then circulate it to other faculty members for review and comment. We barely passed our research plan with a two-thirds majority vote. Um, but it was really successful for us to be able to outline the standards of who we wanted to be, um, who we didn't want to be, um, and to be able to advance and moving forward. And that vision certainly fit with the president at the time was really pushing. Um, you know, we're, we're at risk of slipping out of the AAU. Everybody know what the AAU is, Association of American Universities. We're at risk of slipping out of the AAU. We need to increase our research metrics. So that's what really, really tried to focus on as a unit. But now I'm, we're getting kind of pushed back with faculty saying we've gone too much in that direction. We've pushed too much on the metrics. Because we've, we've put that like a 648% increase in grant dollars and whatnot. So a lot of change. But now people are like, hey, we want to even out now. <laughs> I don't know if that answered your question. The other thing that Amy's done really beautifully is just try to lessen the silos between tenure stream faculty, fixed term faculty, and staff. So she's elevated fixed term faculty to really important leadership roles in our department. And I think that's also been really. And that's the anarchy part, because not everybody loves that, right? Because tenure like to be here, fixed term, staff, students. But I tried to level kind of how people operate so it's been good in the sense of like if we're thinking about more of a democratic situation, but not everybody, every, some people like to keep that structure in place. So I have, I certainly haven't scoured the literature on this, but when I became associate dean, I did get some books talking about administration and I was really surprised at how few of them even addressed women in administration, probably because we haven't been there very long. So I just want to throw a thought proposal out there. So we're a great group right here, and it seems like every time we sit at the table, this is a topic that comes up. Either people are being recruited, they've been put in the permanent interim place, things like that. So I mean, I think there's a demand for some sort of co-edited book out there that talks about women in higher ed admin. I just put that idea out there, so I don't know, maybe a group of people want to get, I know, because I have some free time, and. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Yeah, my husband will leave me, but but no, seriously, I think that there's a huge demand for it. And um, you know, if you look at the numbers of women in education, we are dominating up to the tenure tenure track where we're 50% now. Um, but above that, we're still not dominating, but it's going that way. And so I think to have some useful guidelines would be really helpful for a lot of people out there. And I think this is the group to do it. Just a proposal. Who's in? Who's in? All right, good, good very good idea, that's great. Can I mention one other thing too, just quickly about kind of like gender bias and the gender dichotomy, and this applies to everyone in the room, regardless of whether you're administration, you're in an, an instruction position, you're a research, but typically there's a, there's a dichotomy, and this has been well documented in literature too, that as a woman, societal rules basically state that you cannot be competent and liked at the same time. You're either competent and you're a B, or you're, you're perceived as very nice, but you're not that competent. And so that's what we're kind of up against as women in the classroom, as women administrators, as women researchers. Um, and, and I think a book like that could really help. Thank you. Uh, the presentation was great by both of you, and I learned a lot. Um, one of the questions that I have that I've heard from some others uh, in discussions here from the different hives and also for myself, 
Um, I think because of the field that we're in, uh, we often get tapped to do sexual violence work on campus. Um, and sometimes, and I'll speak for myself, it starts to be this sort of creep of work responsibilities where um, you're asked to represent the university on the issue or join committees um, or lead up grants or other types of things. And so, you know, wondering if you have any suggestions about how do you deal with that creep? When do you say this is actually an administrative role and not just, you know, something that I can add on to my faculty role? Um, and sort of with that thought, um, just wondering, you know, how we can encourage everyone to sort of advocate uh, for themselves in those positions. I can, I don't know if I have great words of, of wisdom, and I think Sandy and I were talking about it a little bit this morning at breakfast in terms of being asked on our campus, right, to serve on committees and at the state level, right, to do things related to violence, and those are the kinds of service responsibilities that are really the hardest to say no to, right, because we are, it's a lot more interesting than, you know, sitting on a like a P&T review in, you know, chemistry, right? So those are really the hard things to say, say no to. And so I think for me, um, I do a lot of that. I do say no to certain things and say I don't have time. I look for sometimes some of the experiences I have found are good experiences for my graduate students. Right, so you're asked to do something and you don't have the time to do it, but you do have the time to consult or to, um, um, you know, advise or mentor a graduate student um, to do it. Um, sometimes there are other people on campus who would, who would be good. Um, the other part of it too is if it's okay to ask for compensation too when it's an administrative, when it's an administrative position. Um, you know, we've done a lot of work on our campus that ends up around sexual assault issues that end up to be really administrative kinds of reports and, and stuff that I've been asked to do. And I have asked for compensation in the summer when that's a part of the job. I've asked for compensation for my students when they're, you know, asked to analyze data from, you know, the campus climate survey or something like that. So. Asking for compensation is really okay, and more often than not, I've gotten it. Um, so I don't know if that helps, but. Um. Can I make a comment about compensa compensation to build on what you're saying? So um, how many people do have administrative supplements in their positions? So if anybody wants kind of feedback on like negotiating, if you haven't had that before, we'd be happy to talk with you about that. That is really important. And it, there is disparities between men and women. Men, men tend to get a lot more than women. And you should ask for as much as what men in your institution are getting. Um, yes. So as a department chair, um, so I get a I get a 12-month salary, but then on top of that, I get a $20,000 a year administrative supplement. When I was first negotiating for my position, the dean was like, oh, no, no, we don't offer those. But I consulted with my my male mentor in Seattle. I said, I don't know, at University of Washington, we get at least 50,000 administrative supplements. So you need to ask for, so I was the first person to really push on that at Michigan State, and I got the 20,000. And now that's the cap for our college. So. I'm good at helping you push up if you need help in that regard. We were talking in our hive um, last night, and I won't say who mentioned this, but somebody said they had like a $3,000 summer supplement. 
<laughs> and so we were kind of, this is our subversive dynamic. And we're like, well, for that 3,000, you need to tell them you're just going to work for one week in the summer. And that's it. That's it. Like, or you're going to work for three hours every Monday throughout the summer. Is that fair? Other thing is that summer stipends I have found um, don't change a lot, and I, so you have to remind people that you know the cost of living goes up, also that the responsibilities change over time. And for most of us, I think administer, administrators' responsibilities get more. You know, like it, it's become more burdensome, not less burdensome. But I mean, 20 years, my position had the same stipend in the summer. Right, and so at some point I had to say, okay, 20 years. Like, <laughs> I think this there should be a raise, right? And um, there you go. Like that's like the whole thing, right? Is market value of what would, and so and there's no transparency. So that's I'm actually on a wage compensation. Um, group um, for with HR and uh, so that's what I've been pushing for is that we need to know what our ch what our chairs and other administrators yet yeah, getting um, and some of us are 10 month which I am and some people are 12 month and so there's just no uniform there's no way to look at uniformity because they're not collecting that information anywhere so it's yeah so that makes it challenging so I've been trying to dig and dig and dig I just wanted to comment quickly, a, a shameless plug. Um, the social workers, the mentee social workers in this group put together an invited special commentary that will be published in the Journal of Family Violence in the August issue, talking about um, sexual violence prevention and response on college campuses, opportunities and challenges for leadership for faculty members. Um, so we talk through a lot of these issues, not really the compensation issue, but the unintended service, the unrecognized service, the emotional labor, the ways that you're expected just to step up when you're, um, this is your topical area. So look out for that. Sarah's gonna have our last maybe comment question. Just a quick question that maybe we can leave. It's actually not a quick question, so maybe we should wait till another time. But one of my questions and things that I've also been discussing with with others is as you take on more administrative roles, how do you fit in time for research? And was just wondering if either of you had any quick tips or suggestions for helping to frame that. I'll go for this. Um, I mean, frankly, there's only, can you hear me now? Okay, there's only so many hours in the day, and the fact is, is that I spend all day doing admin work and lots of my weekends doing admin work, and for me, going to a conference like this and getting in a little early and hiding in my hotel room, or just, I mean, I working seven days a week, it's very, very hard. You have to schedule it in, but it's extremely hard, and I think, like you said, I ran into this wall last, or this past year where, at some point, you're just maxed out. And this is where you learn these great lessons of, oh, I can give 50% here and it still is good. So I don't have a good answer. That's just the way it is, sorry. Uh, well, I have, I have uh, several hats as, that I wear like everybody else here. So I'm the Associate Dean for Research in the School of Public Health that has 230 some faculty members, over 80% of them are involved in research. 
I have the doctoral students and master's students like everybody else. I teach a class. I'm the associate chair for research in my department. And then I do a lot of other service things. So I do the teaching, the research, and the practice. And so there's, there's all of them are big jobs in a sense. So how do you make it work? You sort of have, think about when you go to a physician's office now. And there's these physician extenders. So what you need are staff and great students. You can't do everything all by yourself. You have to have other people that you can help delegate to and have fabulous ideas to really help you get all the job done. And then you also have to ask yourself on those days when you know, you're on email at 5 o'clock, like this morning, like, am I doing this because I want to? And you think, yeah, man, I'm interested in that email. So I think if it's not interesting to you, don't do it. But if it's interesting to you, if you wake up and think, gee, what if they got back to me? And because if it's entertaining to you, keep doing it. But if it's not entertaining, find something else to do. So thank you guys very, very much. We're going to need to move on to our next presentation. Thank you. I learned a lot. I love it. <laughs> subversive. We need to be subversive. <laughs> All right. Bonnie. And Suzanne. And Suzanne. Now let me just quickly say why you guys are Sarah is not able to be with us. She has bronchitis. Sarah, good jigu. So it will be the fine. Whoops, let me keep, keep going up. So we are now on nurturing interdisciplinary collaborations. Everybody got a microphone? All right. One that's All right. lit, and you're going to use it. Yes. <laughs> okay, so we'll, and we're going to go until you tell us to stop. Okay. okay? Yeah, what's your signal for stopping? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, some of what we were going to cover about collaborating kind of in general has been covered, but I'm, we're going to try to focus on the interdisciplinary part because um, maybe we haven't covered everything there yet. So what we wanted to do was um, each of us will talk a little bit about some of our interdisciplinary stuff we've done and um, like the, the benefits and challenges of doing it um, and then have a, have a discussion about it. So I'll go ahead and start. So really, I realize my whole career has been interdisciplinary because I'm a social psychologist by training, but I've never worked in a social psychology department. I'm in a clinical community psychology department. I'm in women's and gender studies. Um, just about everything I do is interdisciplinary. Um, and then nine years ago, I contacted Ann Coker because I was writing this grant. Um, and I thought, well, what if she's going to apply for the same grant? Well, I better try to work with her instead of like competing with her, right? So that's how I got hooked up with Ann and then Bonnie um, was brought in there. Um, and then the other person that Bonnie and I work with a lot now is Nicole Lasky. So victimology, public health, social psychology. Um, and then a couple of years ago at a conference, I met a educational psychologist who um, is in Switzerland. And I just went to talk to her after her talk because um, something she said in the talk made me understand this finding I had from the study that I'd done that I never understood and all of a sudden I understood it in a new light and then we kind of hit it off so we have a paper that's ready to submit and that was just you know a conversation at a conference um, and then a year and a half ago I started working with um, an information scientist big data guy who contacted me out of the blue because he was writing a grant um, to look at like Twitter data and, and data from some uh, data sets, everydaysexism.com and so forth. 
um, and he wanted to do something on sexual harassment, but that wasn't his content area. So we have a paper that uh, was just submitted. We just got a grant for that. Um, so sometimes things fall into your lap, but that's a little bit about my own interdisciplinary stuff. I started out being a political scientist, um, and as Kelly can attest, right, I know my three branches of government, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, the executive branch, right, the legislative branch, and the judicial branch, right? And so I tell people, I've had to both evolve and mature into becoming a violence against women researcher. Um, it's not something I was exposed to in graduate school. Um, I mean, I went mainstream political science, undergrad, graduate, you know, school at Northwestern. Fortunately, Wes Scogan plucked me from one of my policy analysis classes um, and asked me how I was going to be eating that summer. And I kind of looked at him like, what are you talking about? What he was really trying to say is, would you like to be my research assistant, right, at the Center for Urban Affairs and Policy Research, right, which was not in the same building as the political science building. It was actually down the street on Sheridan Road. I don't know if any of you are, you know, familiar with Northwestern. So physically separate buildings. And I went, Sure, I'd like to eat, I want to get paid, and I get to be your research assistant. What a great, what a great opportunity, right? And I really didn't know much about the Center for uh, Urban Affairs and Policy Research until I got down there. And boy, it just opened up a new world for me because it was this interdisciplinary center, right? It was one of these old houses on Sheridan Road, so it you know, had that comfy feeling to it. Uh, you know, and every, everybody had offices that were former bedrooms or attics or, or something like that, right? Um, and so, you know, at every floor, there was people from different disciplines. You had Tom Tyler, you know, Doctor of Procedural Justice, right? You had Tom Cook, you know, Doctor of Quasi-Experimental Design. Um, of course, you had Wes Scogan, uh, Chris Winship, you know, Doctor of Statistics, uh, Chris Jenks, you know, sociologist, Dan Lewis and uh, Dennis Rosenbaum. Um, who were doing some work in uh, community, the, the area of community policing and, and community crime prevention. And notice there's a theme here. I've mentioned all males, right? There was one female. I don't know if any, any of you are familiar with Jenny Mansbridge. She's a political philosopher. No? Yeah, one. That was it, one female. Um, but, you know, the good side to that, I mean, I enjoyed um, working with Jenny and, and talking with her, was that, you know, we didn't have to share a bathroom with those guys. <laughs> and, the, and, the, and the semester Jenny went on sabbatical, you know, I had the whole bathroom to myself. It was great, right? Um, but that aside, I mean, I just got exposed to having, you know, these people from different disciplines around me. And so when I had an idea, when I had a question, all I had to do was run down from my attic loft, <laughs> you know, and just knock on a door and they would spend time with you, you know, talking with you and, and explaining things to you and listening to your questions, you know. Um, and it was just this wonderful environment, you know. And I thought, how could I ever leave this and go back down to political science, you know. Although Wes Gogan kept on reminding me, you still have to take your comps in political science. You still have to master those three branches of government, right. Um, I said, don't worry, I'll pull it together, Wes. I'll pull it together, right. Um, and so. I was socialized as a graduate student in this inter interdisciplinary wonderfulness, if you will. I mean, to the point where the other graduate students nicknamed me 99. And if any of you know who do survey research, what's a 99 usually left for? Missing, missing value, right? Yeah, I was the missing value. <laughs> I would come down to play. Go, Here comes 99, you know, I'm like, check it in, you know. Um, and then you know, after graduate school, um, I accepted a job at Ohio State um, in the College of Engineering in the Department of City and Regional <coughs> Planning, right? And they brought me in 
to teach planners about how crime impacts on neighborhoods in terms of neighborhood development and, and neighborhood decline, right? No political scientists around me, right? And so I'm a real social person, right? <laughs> Both intellectually as well as personally, right? And I thought, wow, I, I need to somehow create what I experienced in graduate school, right? And so I'm not shy. I just reach out to people, right? Because I, I, I need that, right? Um, and I tried to reach out to colleagues in my department, and that's where Jack Nasser and I started collaborating, who had a totally different paradigm in terms of looking at the world than I did. But we, we both learned you know, to work with each other and enjoy each other. And I found some people at Ohio State to, to hang out with. Um, and then I decided to go to the University of Cincinnati, back into political science. And I'll tell you, at that point, boy, was I a fish out of water. You know, I was like, oh my gosh. I mean, to the point where I was actually hiring students from the School of uh, Criminal Justice to be on my projects because I didn't have the students in political science who had the skills or, or the interests that I had, right? Um, and then, you know, I was in political science for a while, sort of doing my own thing, but still reaching out to people. For example, probably one of my long-term collaborators, I don't know if any of you know John Sloan, who was at the University of Alabama, Birmingham, Cold called him one day, because he, he wrote a paper about crime rates on campus, you know. I mean, I was just reaching out to people the best I could um, to make myself happy, to make my family happy, <laughs> and to make my colleagues happy, too, right? Um, and then uh, one day I called up this person called Frank Cullen. <laughs> and if any of you know Frank Cullen, he, too, is very social, right? And so Frank and I hit it off. Frank was over in the School of Criminal Justice, which is on the opposite side of campus, right? Um, and so Frank and I, is, and Frank introduced me to Joanne Belknap, you know, and I'm like, okay, finally some buds on campus, right? Um, which ended up being just a wonderful collaboration, right? Well, slowly Frank Cullen was trying to pull me over to the School of Criminal Justice. Um, and then Joanne Belknap left, and they had an opening for a faculty member like me, right? And that's how it was termed. <laughs> we need one of you, Bonnie. I'm like, what does that mean, right? I'm a political scientist, right? Um, and so they lured me over to the School of Criminal Justice. Um, and I got there. I'm thinking, OK, now I have you know, an intellectual home. I didn't know the difference. I didn't know there was a difference, right? Because I had that three branches of government training, right? I didn't know there was a difference between criminology and criminal justice. I had no idea, right? And so my colleagues had to sort of tell me what was the difference. How many of you know the difference? Oh, there you go. <laughs> and what is the difference? That's right. <laughs> well, once again, I thought, okay, I got, you know, I'm Frank Collin, but he's a, he's a, he's a criminologist. I kind of co-opt him, you know? Um, and then I realized, okay, if I'm going to have some more colleagues, right, once again, I have to outreach, right? And so even with respect to hiring, for example, we hired Pam Wilcox, lured her away from the University of Kentucky. Pam's a sociologist. I'm like, okay, now I got someone to play with in the sand, right? Um, but I, I never stop sort of looking for people to collaborate with, um, in part because I just find it so exciting. You know, it just, it in part satisfies my curiosity, right? And they just add so much. They, they really do. I mean, they give me a different perspective, a different, you know, one of those, hmm, I haven't thought of it that way moments. Yeah, I have that a lot when I work with, you know, people in different, different disciplines. Um, you know, I'm introduced, like I said, different paradigms, different language sometimes. I mean, Anne and I sometimes have to translate for each other, right? <laughs> Longitudinal study, panel study, cohort study. <laughs> um, but it's just so rewarding on so many different levels. And, and I also think, in the, I mean, personally, but I also think this interdisciplinary perspective 
also improves the science of what we're doing. You know, it breaks down, I think somebody mentioned earlier, those silos, you know, those intellectual silos. Um, and I also find it just a lot of fun to work with people, like trying to work with Sandy. I mean, it's been wonderful, right? I mean, she's taught me, she and Ann have taught me a lot about public health, let me tell you. More things, you know, than, than I probably realize. Um, but it is, it's just for me, it's just such a fruitful way to look at things, like I said, and just, you know, the science. It makes the science better because you can see the integration of ideas. And to me, that is just so exciting. That's what pops for me when we talk about inter interdisciplinary research. Let's talk about challenges a little bit. No, so, there are no challenges. <laughs> so, that, so that's the, the great part about it. And really, if you're in violence against women research, which everybody here is, you're already doing interdisciplinary stuff because mm -hmm. it's spread across all these different disciplines. Um, so here's a challenge that I've seen. Um, my husband is a community psychologist. And in comparing my own career to his, he has been a part of his community psychology um, professional division since he was in graduate school. He like goes to these meetings every other year, and these are his people. You know, he's got his home, and these people have like grown up in the discipline together, and like he knows everybody. They know him. He's been president. You know, like it's been a really meaningful home for him. And I've never had a disciplinary home that way. I go to like all these different conferences. I now go to um, American Society of Criminology because of her, mm -hmm. um, you know, and And we like, warmly welcome her too. <laughs> but I've been sort of hopping around all these years to these different disciplines. And so I don't, I don't really have a home. And so sometimes it maybe feels a little, um, I just feel a little scattered sometimes. So to me, the benefits outweigh that, but just to kind of put that out there as a challenge. Um, and other challenges we could mention, of course, is um, when you're working with someone in a different discipline, you have to kind of learn the discipline and learn the language, like uh, learn, learn what are priorities for that discipline. And sometimes, like, there's just different priorities for what disciplines value. So in psychology, we're all about measurement. And, you know, we can spend hours talking about items and measuring and all this. And in other fields, they don't really care that much about that. You know, just ask a few questions and you're done. And, and it can be hard sometimes having these conversations across disciplines um, because different disciplines sort of prioritize different things. It's not that it's not important, you know, it's just that there's different priorities. And so you have to uh, work through that sometimes. And you have to learn new methods, new theories, new ways of writing. Um, it just, it's time consuming. You know, you have to put the time in. I think another thing you also have to be mindful of with respect to challenges is what are your RPT criteria? Because there are some fields that are much more welcoming of interdisciplinary work, as well as publishing and interdisciplinary journals. And then there's, you know, other disciplines, they want you in their mainstream, you know, top journals. Um, my husband is like Suzanne's husband. He's an economist, right? And so they got their paradigm. Right? They have their black pants with their brown shoes that they always wear. I mean, ser seriously, they are so, in, you know, in the AER, that's it, you know, for them. Um, and they don't, at times, think in an inter interdisciplinary way. You know, if it's not rational choice, well, what else could it be? Right? And, I, and one time I tried working with my husband. We thought, okay, perfect collaboration, workplace violence. 
right? Because he's a labor economist, right? And the deal was I was going to teach him all about the NCVS, and he was going to teach me SAS, right? You know, about midway through the project, we decided that probably our best collaboration was having children. <laughs> I'll be honest with you, it was the true test of a marriage, right? And that was our one and only project. Because one of the things we realized is that not only did we sort of have, you know, a different view in terms of our respective fields, right? We had different work styles, very different work styles. Um, and like I said, we just decided it was best for the marriage that we do this one project, you know, and then move on to something else. Um, and so that sometimes can be challenging, is finding collaborators. And they can be different from you, because I work with a lot of, you know, different people who have, you know, different skill sets and things like that. But there also has to be a spark, you know, in terms of, and, and, it's, and it's organic, you know. But I know it when I'm in that type of collaboration, and I also know it when, when I'm not. And I always try to make the best of any collaboration. But sometimes, you know, you will find a collaborator where things just hum, if you will, you know? And you can't, you can't wait. Like on Friday, uh, 10.30, every Friday, Suzanne, Nicole, and I talk. And that, that's, that's collaboration time, you know? And I look forward to those meetings because I enjoy talking with Nicole and Suzanne so much, right? Um, and they really energize me, especially at the end of the week. Um, but one of the challenges can, can be just finding good collaborators. You know, and, and, and there, for me, there's different types of collaborations, and I've had to learn this over time. There's some that are going to be long-term, right? There's some that are just going to be that one project where we do it, we get done, or that one paper. And that's okay, too. It's, it's nothing negative. It's just sort of the way things worked out. Um, you know, and trying to navigate that can sometimes be hard. Because you're trying so, to get to know a person personally, intellectually. Yeah, so I, I think it might be useful to talk a little bit about when collaborations, interdisciplinary or otherwise, aren't going well and maybe work through some of those issues. You know, I'm sure a lot of you have had collaborations that maybe weren't going so well, maybe because of different work styles, different priorities, mm -hmm. maybe... Um, Sometimes because people are just in a different part of their life yeah. than I am. Like when I had kids... You know, I found it difficult to work with people who didn't have kids mm -hmm. just because they were on a different time cycle than I was, you know, and so I had to be upfront about that. You know, I can't turn things around in 24, 48 hours. You got to give me a week. And on the other hand, maybe you are up for tenure in a year or two and you really need to pump some stuff out and this other person is, maybe they already have tenure and they're, you know, taking a long time to get back to you about things. Um, so... I guess Bonnie and I talked about this and how to manage these challenges. And I think the key is really just communication and being as open as possible with your collaborators about what you need mm -hmm. and trying to have those conversations early on in the relationship um, about authorship, about work roles, about work styles, about like, you know, limit setting perhaps mm -hmm. about, you know, well, I need at least a week to respond to things or, you know, can, what, what is your work style? How quickly can you respond to things? Um, what is the product I want to get out of this? Mm -hmm. Do I want to get a grant? Do I want to get a publication? Um, and, and maybe we could talk a little bit about like ending collaborations as well. Like if they're not going well, you know, yeah. how do you end these things? We talked about that a little bit in our hive. Um, and, and those, that can be a difficult process. Could we 
talk like about two more minutes and then mm -hmm. open it up. Does that sound good? Yeah, we could open okay. it up even now. Open up now? Okay. Yeah. All right, I'll, I'll, I'll pass on my mic. Callie, do you have something to add? I'd like to hear about your experiences with respect to interdisciplinary collaborations. Yeah, no, I, I'm glad that you're bringing up the when things go bad with collaboration because they do. And you can even have a long time collaboration that, that doesn't work out and how to deal with it. And I, I totally echo the once a week meeting, maybe once every two weeks, being very clear up front. It is a weird, awkward conversation to go, okay, what's the author order on this? Or even outline a series of papers and then how you're gonna deal with it. And every week or two weeks saying, this is what I will bring back. And I've been in some with lovely people. It's just, you know, people change where they are in life and things and we've had to have a breakup. Um, and, it's, and it is really hard. And so I don't think you can make it easy other than just saying, I don't think this is gonna work out. Um, and then I think after that, just being really professional. And regardless of what they do, it may mean that you've got to pick up a lot more slack on whatever project to get it done, but that's what you do to get the project you want. And then being professional after that, because there are plenty of people out there that want to hear dirt or bad things or gossip, and that doesn't serve anyone well. It's a small world. Um, they're going to hear about it. They're going to think probably worse about you if you're going to talk poorly about somebody. And you never know if, the, if you two can come back together at some point. So I'm glad you're talking about it. I don't know if other people have really good strategies for dealing with the collaborative breakup. I, I agree with everything you said. I mean, sometimes I've had to write that email or whatever, have that conversation, and I feel better about it because there's a closure, but, but not a termination, you know, because like you said, maybe something will work out, you know, in, in the future. Because sometimes I, I don't know the whole story about what's going on in that person's life as to why they dropped the ball or, you know, whatever may happen. Um, but then I like to have that closure, you know, just like I say, okay, well, we're not going to go on with this project, but maybe in the future, you know. I don't have a comment about the breakup, but I think one of the things, too, that I've noticed that, um, once again, is both challenging but also nice is, like, with technology, right? Like, we, I think many of us maybe have had the opportunity to collaborate where you're not really even meeting face-to-face, -face, right? Like, you used to sit down and you used to have that conversation and face-to-face kind of to me facilitated it and i think one of the things that's helpful when i've collaborated with people and when you especially when you don't have that face to face is to try to identify who's taking the leadership on the collaboration right so and that might be renegotiated but like someone has to be responsible for it helps at least what's worked for me so if someone's responsible for trying to keep people on track Right, and trying to set the time frame, and who's going to get the paper next or the manuscript next, right? Like, if there's someone who takes that leadership role, at least my experience has been, it seems to run more, more smoothly lots of times. And so occasionally it's renegotiated. Someone says, I can't do this, right? But um, it's just a strategy that I think has been helpful. I would just add um, sometimes the group collaborations, like the more people you have, just the more dynamics it enters, and the, the whole um, collaboration just becomes more complex. And especially if you're not meeting face-to-face, -face, but you're all on a phone somewhere, God knows where, you know, all over the place, um, trying to coordinate your schedules. And, and so those can get complex. And then if you have problems or issues in those kind of collaborations, it's not like you can just talk to the one other person, like, you know, there's this whole group dynamic going on. Um, so I just wanted to throw that out and maybe ask for people's thoughts or strategies on 
how to deal with those kind of complex collaborations when they're having problems. So I have a comment about one that's been really successful, which was difficult, but um, I'm collaborating still with an anthropologist, and as an epidemiologist, we had very different ways of seeing things, um, and we've done a lot of mixed methods uh, research together, but her... Um, uh, priorities and frame for things was so different. You, the first manuscript we worked on, she said, well, I'll take the first stab at it. And it was like 20,000 words. And I was like, what are you thinking? And she was like, what do you mean? We don't have limits on the words in our journals. And I was like, ours is like 4,000. You know, we got to cut this in half. And so over time, and even things like the order in her department, if you're first or second author, you get credit. And in my department, if you're first or last author, you get credit. And so just talking through those things of trying to figure out what each other's needs are, what each other's styles are, I think talking about it up front would have helped us to have um, not have so much of a struggle on that first paper. But, um, but so understanding who you're collaborating with. But then to your topic about working with a large group, we tried to do a project. So my husband works at Sandia, which is a national lab, and it's all engineers. And we tried to do a collaborative effort with um, system scientists there. And we worked for like three years. We had one of those NIH training grants. We had these retreat meetings. The first year was all just trying to understand each other's language. And we ended up submitting an R21, an R01, um, and nothing got funded. And we struggled and struggled, and we kept pushing it. And after three years, we finally got to the point of just saying, you know, I don't think this is gonna work out. And it was really difficult to let it go after putting so much work and time into it. Um, but it came to the point where I think we just all decided that the investment, it just wasn't gonna be successful. And it was really hard. Um, and we're still friends with some of the people, but mm -hmm. yeah, so that was our experience. I have a piggybacking comment because I have that, as a social epidemiologist, I have that similar challenge. Well, you also don't know what you don't know. So I've, I've learned a lot about during these interdisciplinary collaborations about authorship order and all of that and how that differs by discipline. For the pre-tenure faculty in the room, um, one of the things that I've added to my CV um, is a statement of authorship order at the very beginning of my pubs to denote because I say, you know, I'm a social epidemiologist trained in public health. I work in a college of social science, um, so that it really explains the different pubs that I have on my CV and how th the author order meaning might differ. That was something that we talked about to add. Oh yeah. So I don't know if this is about interdisciplinary collaboration, but I've. We're working on my tenure portfolio, so we've done a. <laughs> um, the other thing I did to my CV was flip everything around and make it as easy as possible for the reviewers to see the uh, how many pubs I've published since I got to Michigan State and all of that by um, by year, which I'm happy to share. Oh yeah, that, that was what I was gonna say. Would you be happy to share yeah. with that? <laughs> okay, so could you send that to Emily and yeah. we can put it out for those because several people are in the process of going up for tenure and promotion. Thank you. Thank you. Sandy. Okay, I was just going to say that if you're um, if you're not working inter in a dis interdisciplinary way, you're probably not addressing important questions. Yeah. Because if you if you really want to address important questions about violence against women, it really does take a village, and we know who said that. Yeah. We miss her, but. Um, 
but it's really true because you can't you can't know all this stuff. You can't be a biostatistician and a measurement person and all those things into one. So I, I really think if you're really into solving, addressing important problems, it, you just ha you have to work that way. And I think the hard part is is if you look around in your group of people and you can't find playmates, then what do you do? You have to reach out in some way. I think that's where the trickier part comes. So. I'm just a big fan of interdisciplinary work, regardless of your field. And reaching out can take many forms. Like I said, I'm not shy about literally cold calling, you know, calling people on the phone or emailing or introducing myself at conferences. And, you know, people will come up to me, and I really welcome that, you know, but, but sort of creating a network, you know, where you just go out. And, and most people are very, very receptive, you know, they, they really are. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The one thing that I wish that I would have done differently in terms of de developing collaborations would have been to slow down and be a bit more strategic. I think in the beginning I was a little overly eager, like anybody that, like people that had interest, I didn't do enough research, and not that the people I collaborate with are really wonderful people, but I wish I would have just slowed down and really thought about our various contributions, and maybe also talked to other people who had collaborated with them to see if what they can bring to the table is really what they can bring to the table. Um, but I think I was just a little too, as a new person, overly eager to like jump in, like, oh, great, come join the team, come join the team. And now it's like, our team is huge, and I'm the lead of a lot of more senior people and community partners. And I think I, it would have been a lot easier a couple of years ago if I would have just slowed down a bit and not have been so eager to be excited to have people that wanted to do this project with me. Thank you, Megan. Sounds like a work-life balance issue, perhaps. And surprisingly, that's our next topic. Thank you guys very much, very much.